You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Are you known by those closest to you as being a leader or a follower? Author S.I. McMillan tells the story of a young woman, a high school senior, who desired to go to her dream college, but her heart sank when she came to this question on the application, are you a leader? Being honest yet sad, she wrote, no, I am not, and returned the application. Weeks later, that college wrote back, and to her surprise, she read these words, Dear applicants, a study of our application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,500 new leaders. We feel it is imperative that we have at least one follower. You are accepted. (laughs) And there you have it, church, the blessings of followership. Though I brought good news this morning, this young woman in our story is not the only one who is Blessed to be a follower for every person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is blessed because we follow the greatest leader of all. This Jesus chooses us, pursues us, draws us near to himself, and then calls us to follow him. Despite each of our past failures, present imperfections, future sins, Jesus still looks at you this morning and says, follow me. Of no merit of our own. But out of his abundant love, Jesus calls us to follow after him. It was that English theologian, John Stott, who wrote, Our Christian life began not with our decision to follow Christ, but with God's call to us to do so. And this is what we witness in Matthew's gospel account. For chapter 4 tells us Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Can you see it? Large crowds are following Jesus after seeing his signs and his wonders. Individuals are compelled to follow Jesus after hearing his teachings of majesty and mercy and authority. Onlookers in the fringe folk begin to follow Jesus after beholding how the sick are brought back to health. The demons are cast out. The lame are made to walk. But Jesus has called the core group of 12. 12 disciples to follow closely after him, to walk with him and learn from him and be loved by him. These 12 chosen by Jesus are not the religious elite of his day, but fishermen and tax collectors, sons and brothers who have left behind homes, families, and professions to walk with the Lord. But there's also a small group of women who follow closely after Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This core group Jesus has called on a journey to follow after him. But it begs the question, does it not, church? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it entail? And while the concept of following Jesus is familiar to many of us, it's always good to be reminded of what Christ calls us to, especially as we approach the beginning of a new ministry year in a few weeks. 
In our story this morning, Jesus shows us what it means to follow him. But before we arrive there, we must know the identity of the one we follow. To follow Jesus, we first need a right confession of who Jesus is. We pick up the story in verse 13. Jesus was coming into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Up to this point, Matthew tells us that Jesus had been ministering in Jewish territory. Jesus has been doing the miraculous and preaching the good news of the kingdom, but now he moves away from Galilee, taking his core group of disciples 25 miles northward to predominantly Gentile territory, the district of Caesarea. That's the important and influential city, that city known for its paganism and worship of the Greek gods. It is here in Caesarea Philippi where God wants to do some of his biggest work. It's here where God wants to reveal who Jesus is. And as Jesus is on this journey, walking with his disciples, he pauses and poses to them one question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do the crowds confess me to be? What's the word on your Twitter feed about who I am? Jesus is desiring to know what people have gleaned about his identity from what he's done thus far. And and this is an appropriate question by Jesus, one, because everyone is looking for the Christ, the Messiah. The Bible tells us that since the fall and the humanity in the Garden of Eden, God's people had dealt with the treacherous blow of sinning against God and all the consequences that had come from it. Despite being loved and cherished by the Lord, God's people rebelled against him, and as a result, were continually attacked by ungodly enemies, tempted by idolatry, experienced much suffering and loss, and were kicked out, exiled of the land of peace and prosperity into foreign captivity. But in the midst of their brokenness, hopelessness, the people were wondering, God, will there ever be a day where things will be made right but God? out of his steadfast love, promised that one day he would send the Christ, the Messiah, an anointed deliverer for his people, one who would redeem the people from sin and misery, re rebuild what's been broken down in the land, and renew the people to walk with God again. The Christ would fulfill all the Old Testament promises in the hopes of the children of God. He would usher in God's kingdom of justice and righteousness and establishing God's reign and rule upon the earth. The Christ would make it so God could dwell fully with his people once again. This one would be the king of Israel, the one to release the godly from the wicked. And here in the book of Matthew for God's people, it's a time of political corruption and abuse at the hands of the Romans. There's cultural and ethnic division, societal tension, much confusion, physical, spiritual, and emotional exhaustion. And everyone is looking, waiting, yearning for the Christ who would be the light of hope for God's people? Who would bring about the eschatological age of God's reign where he would save the righteous and triumph over the wicked? Who, who would come to make all things right here on earth? Everyone's heart is longing for the Christ. However, this is also the right question by Jesus because he desires to know what people have gleaned from his public ministry up to this point. Is there fruit on the vine? Is anyone able to interpret the times? Father, have they been able to grasp from my mighty works who I am? Though truthfully, 
The crowds are having mixed opinions about who Jesus is. Watch the response of the disciples in verse 14. And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. And others say you're Elijah, the, the one who performed mighty acts in the Old Testament. And others say you're Jeremiah, whose message and mission were rejected by the people, or one of those other prophets. But Jesus responds by asking a deeper question. He said to them, but you, who do you say that I am? What do you believe about me? And this is the real question on the table, isn't it, church? What do you confess about Jesus? We're living in a time where everyone seems to have an opinion about Jesus, but who do you say that he is? Who do you know Jesus to be? And this question, which was posed to the group, gets answered by the disciple with the biggest personality, the passionate, all-in disciple, the disciple who likes to share his thoughts whether he is asked or not. Disciple Peter steps forward as the leader and spokesperson and says, Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes haven't gotten it. The crowds and the rulers have misunderstood, but I've seen your glory. I know who you are. You are the Christ. Now you ask, what has brought Peter to this point? Well, if you read prior to chapter 16, we see that Peter has had some encounters with Jesus. Peter has had small revelations of Jesus' character. It was Peter who was in the crowd of 5,000, where the only food to eat was a young boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish. But he watched Jesus turn it into a banquet, finding out that Jesus is that provider. Peter was in the living room when Jesus came over to heal his sick mother, and he found out that Jesus is the healer. Peter was in that boat that was rocked around by the raging storm, and he heard Jesus tell the wind and the waves to be quiet, and he learned that even nature has to obey Jesus' command. Peter beheld the Lord stretch his hand towards a leper, and he saw there is nobody in our city too unclean for Jesus to reach out and touch. It was Peter who was called by Jesus to walk to him on water, and as he took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink, Jesus caught him up at the right time, and Jesus said, You are God's beloved son, and Peter, whose heart has been worked on by God, is compelled to give his fullest confession. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, you are God's anointed, the truly prophesied Messiah. You are the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. You are the long-awaited king of Israel, the inaugurator of God's reign, the true son of David, Emmanuel, God with us. You are the one the prophet spoke of, the one my father hoped for, the one my grandmother was praying for. You are the Christ, the Savior of the world. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't learn this in seminary. You didn't come to this conclusion by human calculation. Nobody taught you this in Sunday school. But by my Father who blessed your heart, he revealed this to you by the means of grace. And my question for you, church family, has God revealed it to you that Jesus is the Christ? 
Has the Father poured grace into your soul to believe? Has he opened your eyes to see that in days of disappointment, unrest, societal decay, exhaustion, and pain, that there is a Savior, that the Lord is present in his name, is Jesus Christ, that there is one who will rock you to sleep at night, the one who will forgive your sins? Has he shown you that Jesus is the one our nation has been searching for, the one who is the light and hope in each of our darkest moments, the one who is trustworthy and faithful to save and will one day make all things right? Who do you say that he is? Peter is the first person to confess, to address Jesus directly as the Christ. And Jesus blesses Peter in return to his blessed confession. Jesus says in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, oh, I, I, I love it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus blesses Peter with the new name Rock, which stands for that courageous confessor of Jesus' true identity. Jesus promises that on this rock, this confession, Jesus will build his church. Through the gospel activity of the apostles like Peter, Jesus would gather and strengthen his church. He would use Peter to build the church, which we see most evidently in the book of Acts where Peter preaches some great sermons as well as Peter's letter to the churches. Though not only does Jesus promise that he will build his church on the rock, but, but that the gates of hell shall not prevail against that church. No power in hell can defeat, win a victory over the church. Nothing in culture, the spiritual realm, not even widespread persecution of Christians can crush Christ's church, for it will never perish, never die. But Jesus will be faithful to build his church until he returns. Do you believe this? This is why we ought to stick with the church. Many things will fall around us in the years to come, but the church is here to stay. Amen? Amen. Jesus will build his church. He will be victorious in the end. But along with Jesus making kingdom promises to Peter, he also delegates kingdom authority to Peter. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing refers to admitting and shutting off entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus gives Peter authority to, to usher people into his kingdom. For whoever has the same confession as Peter that Jesus is the Christ, those people would enter into the community of believers. And I love Peter. He's probably my favorite disciple. I can see him at an all-time high in this moment. Jesus, he just said on the rock. James and John, did you hear the Lord? I'm the rock. Mama Mary, it's a long walk. Let me carry that for you. But did you hear your son? He said that I'm the rock. Matthew, I know you be collecting taxes. You got a good job downtown, but we need to talk because Jesus just said that I'm the rock. <laughs> Thomas, you're always doubting the Lord. Well, you need to believe him when he says that I'm the rock. <laughs> Nevertheless, Jesus intervenes. Peter, pay your taxes. And he shuts it down. And he steps in and he makes it clear. Hear me, hear me, group. Tell nobody that I am the Christ. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. But Jesus, why? 
Don't you want the world to know that you are the Christ, the one we've been waiting for and whom we are to be saved? Why must we keep your identity a secret? But Jesus knows that at this time there are a few different assumptions about who the Christ would be. You see that title Christ, Messiah, it carries the connotation of a political militaristic warrior. So some people think the Christ is about to be a political leader who's going to take us from under the Roman yoke. Others are assuming that the Christ is going to be a revolutionary who would lead a revolt against Rome. And some people believe the, the Christ is, is going to be an anointed deliverer or, or maybe a great teacher, a great rabbi, or maybe a, a heavenly son of man. And since Jesus knows this word would spread concerning him, he charges the disciples to tell nobody of his identity. Because it would be a sad day if the crowds misinterpreted what the Christ came to accomplish. And it would be even worse if one of Jesus' own disciples had a misunderstanding of his mission. And this brings us to our next point. Not only does following Jesus require having a right confession of who Christ is, but we also need a right understanding of what Christ came to do. In verse 21, Jesus begins to tell us of that mission. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus begins to explain to his disciples why he was sent from heaven to earth, why he has come. He is to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. Israel's foremost leaders will arrest and persecute him. Not only that, but they will kill him. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. This is why Jesus came. This is the Messiah's mission. In order to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, to satisfy God's wrath, in obedience to his Father, in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus must go to Jerusalem and die. In other words, what Jesus predicts will be no accident, but this is divine necessity. This is God's plan of redemption, how he will save you and me from our sins. This suffering and death is God's will for Jesus. This was prophesied about Jesus. For 700 years before this moment in Matthew 16, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the Lord, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. However, as Jesus is walking and explaining to the group that he is bound to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, there is one disciple who cannot believe it, one disciple who cannot fathom it, one disciple who refuses to accept how the Christ must suffer, and who else could it be? Because for Peter, his assumption of who the Christ should be is oh so different. Can you see Peter wrestling with himself, church? befuddled, confused, and agitated as he listens to Jesus describe how he will be tried in a kangaroo court, beaten, 
flogged, wear a crown of thorns upon his head, and then crucified on a shameful criminal's cross. Lord, suffering, death, the cross, what does he mean? He's the Christ. He's supposed to conquer the Romans. He's supposed to do away with my enemies. He's supposed to make Israel great again. He's supposed to put Israel back on top again. I thought I would be on top with him. And Jesus is talking about death. What do you do, church, when what you expected Jesus to do for you is not at all what he does? Well, in Peter's case, he rebukes Jesus. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter grabs Jesus by the arm, takes him away from the group, and with the finger in his chest begins to rebuke, censor, express strong disapproval of Jesus' announcement. Now this is unheard of in a Jewish master-discipleship relationship. This is all the way wrong. Peter gets out of his rightful place as a disciple, which is behind Jesus, and begins telling Jesus what he's going to do. Because when we, have, when we fail to understand who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, it definitely affects how we relate to him. We begin telling Jesus how he is supposed to act and how we're going to live instead of getting behind Jesus and allowing him to set the agenda. And this is exactly what Peter does. Because what's Peter's view of who the Christ should be? What's Peter's assumption of Christ's mission? For Peter, the Christ is not one who suffers, but one who conquers. Peter believes the Christ should be a dominant political warrior who will defeat Rome, saving Israel. And he'll keep the same energy all the way up to Jesus' arrest, where he pulls out his blade and cuts off the ear of a soldier who tries to arrest Jesus. For Peter, the Christ should never suffer. Far be it from you, Lord. I'm your disciple. I'd be a fool. You shall never, ever have to go to the cross. Peter's view of messiahship doesn't match Jesus' view of messiahship, so Peter rebukes his own messiah. And Jesus, as God, has to shut it down. He has to rebuke Peter in return. Verse 23, but, but Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Jesus says, you are put out of order, or, or as my mother used to say to me, you have lost every part of your mind. You are out of position. Get behind me. Come after me. And this is serious. Because not only is Peter out of position, but he is functioning as an agent of Satan. Remember back in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness, it was Satan who tempted Jesus to go after his crown without going to the cross. Satan promised Jesus praise without any pain. He offered Jesus glory without walking up Calvary. And now Satan is using Peter to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, which is why Peter receives the same title. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You are a hindrance to me. You are leading me to live contrary to the will of God, which is going to the cross. Peter, who was just called the rock, is now called Satan. Peter, who was the rock, is now the stumbling stone. But what's the problem here? Why, why is Peter my favorite disciple? Why is he at fault? Jesus says, for, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Peter has a human-centered view of Messiahship. His heart is set on man's interests instead of God's interests. For the things of man are comfort, ease, safety, pleasure, power, and dominance without any suffering or resistance. And this is exactly what Peter wants. He wants the crown without the cross, the triumph without the trial, the exaltation without the preceding humiliation. He wants Jesus to build his church, not knowing that Jesus has to be crucified for there to even be a church. But how often do we in the church live exactly like Peter? Many of us, especially myself this morning, I want the blessings of Christ without the present troubles that come with being associated with Christ. I desire to live an agreeable, blessed, comfortable Christian life and do everything in my power to avoid the suffering and trials of life, refusing to accept that it may be God's will to mature me through suffering and trials. And this same mindset infiltrates our American churches. We often desire to do church with as little resistance or, or power through suffering or headache. We, we want Jesus to build his church, not acknowledging that Jesus builds through suffering. For suffering may not be a sign that God has left your ministry, but that God is at work in your ministry. That God is moving, that he's actually pushing the gospel forward. But when our minds are fixed solely on what feels good to us, rather than embracing what God may be doing, we end up getting in God's way. We become a stumbling block. Thus, while Peter had a beautiful confession of who Christ is, he had a grave misunderstanding of what Christ came to do. He had a right confession of Jesus's identity, but failed to grasp Jesus's mission. And what Jesus has to show Peter is his purpose in coming to earth was not to demolish his enemies, but to die on the cross for his enemies. For his ministry is not set up through earthly conquer and dominance, but Jesus's ministry is cross-shaped this is the type of Christ, the type of Messiah Jesus is. For Jesus is, as Isaiah would put it, the suffering servant, the one who gives his life to save you and me. For Messiahship and suffering are intertwined. This is a right understanding of the Savior, one that is needed in our individual lives and the life of our church, that Jesus is the suffering servant. But if Jesus the Christ came to be a suffering servant, what does that mean for you and me this morning as followers of Jesus? Well, to be a follower of Jesus is to imitate him in his suffering here on earth, to be exalted with him in eternity. Then Jesus told his disciples in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? After telling his disciples about the nature of his mission, Jesus now explains his call to you and me for discipleship. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, to follow behind me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
This is Jesus' reminder to us as his followers this morning. To follow Jesus is to deny ourselves, no longer living merely for our own self-interests, our own life plan, but to take up God's will, living to glorify him, and to take up our cross, surrendering our entire life to God, and follow him, imitating Jesus in the way that he lived, for the death and resurrection of Jesus is to be reflected in you and me. As Jesus gave up his own will in obedience to the Father, taking up his cross, we are to follow in Jesus' footsteps, taking up our cross. It was Spurgeon who wrote, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. You say, what does it look like for me anyway to take up my cross from this point forward? Well, the story is often told of, a, of an old man who became a Christian later in life. And he was so eager to grow in his Christian walk that, that after church one day, he went home and got a blank piece of paper. And he wrote a list down of everything he'd give up for the Lord. Also, the places and people he'd go to to preach the gospel. And so he waited for the next Sunday. And after the service, he went and he put that list on the altar. But after church... That afternoon he went home, he felt so empty inside, and he couldn't figure out why. So the next week after church, he did the same thing. He got that same list, and he added more things to the list, added more people who we'd go and preach to. But after service, he still felt the same emptiness. So he talked to his pastor, and he said, Pastor, I don't know what's up. And his pastor said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a blank sheet of paper, write your name on it, and put that on the altar. This is what it means to take up your cross. Jesus, I give my life over to you. I put my name on the altar. Whatever you call me to do, wherever you send me, whether it involves suffering or not, Jesus, I am yours. I follow you. And this is the main idea of our passage. We, we truly follow Jesus when we imitate him and giving our lives for the gospel. And there's someone in here asking why. But, but why? Why is it really worth denying myself, taking up my cross, and losing my life for Jesus' sake? Well, Jesus tells us first because of the countercultural truth that whoever desires to save his or her life will end up losing it, but whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. Whoever is bent on holding the things of this world and rejects the call to follow Jesus will end up losing what they tried all their life to keep. But the one who loses their life, relinquishing it in faith in Jesus, will gain abundant life now and in eternity. So true discipleship is costly. Though if we lose now, we gain later. But if we try to gain everything now, we lose everything. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. That he is worth any price we must pay to follow him. It was Calvin who wrote, I gave up all for Christ and what have I found? Everything. What's your greatest pursuit in life today? What have you set your heart on gaining this new year? Know that Jesus Christ is more precious. He is better than any treasure, any promotion, any pleasure, 
Any comfort that this world could ever offer you, all the riches of the world cannot compare to the blessed riches of finding true life in Jesus. After all, what, what does it benefit you to gain the whole world, the sum total of earthly riches, but forfeit your soul? What on this earth is worth you holding on to instead of finding your soul satisfied in Jesus? What does it profit a student? to do whatever you can to be liked by everyone, accepted by culture, and not known on campus as a creepy Christian, but forfeit your soul? What does it profit a single person to go for someone who is not devoted to Christ because it feels better than being alone in the moment, but you hurt your own relationship with Christ? What does it profit an employee to seek all the prestige and honor of your colleagues, afraid of receiving shame for your adherence to Christian values, but you have forfeited your Christian witness? What does it profit a parent to pressure your child to be as successful as possible, to, to set their young hearts after all the riches and security in this world, but, but their relationship with the God who numbered the hairs on their head is suffering? Is it worth your child's soul? Rather, one thing is necessary. One thing will last forever. May we not be like the rich young ruler who a few chapters later in Matthew 19 is called by Jesus to go, sell everything he has to the poor, and will have treasure in heaven, and then to come and follow Jesus. But in the saddest verse in the entire Bible, verse 22 reads, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich young ruler had an invitation from Jesus himself to be one of his core 12, to walk closely with Jesus and be near him, the very savior of the world. But the young man turned Jesus down so he could keep his material wealth. How would you have counseled that young man that afternoon? What could have been worth more for that young man, knowing the savior of his soul, the, the Jesus who knew him from before the foundation of the world, who, who chose him, wanted him, stood next to him, would never leave him. Jesus says, trust me that everything you need is found in me. But Jesus also asserts that it is worth you and me giving our lives over to follow him because he will repay us in the end. For the Son of Man, verse 27, is going to come with his angels, the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Friends, for those who have trusted in Jesus, we will be saved on the last day and Jesus will reward us for following him. Trust that every tear you've cried, every cross you've bared, every burden you've had to carry, Every friend you lose this year on account of the gospel, Jesus will restore it all when he returns. There is a reward waiting for us who cross the finish line, but, but will you take up your cross and follow Jesus in the meantime? And as I conclude, today we learn that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised Messiah, who has come to be the Savior of the world. Christ's mission, his purpose was to suffer and die on the cross and be raised on the third day in order to save us. And he calls you and me this morning to follow him by imitating, giving over our lives for the good of the gospel.
But in the same way that Jesus reminded Peter, Jesus reminds you and me that following him means accepting the triumph of a Christian along with the trials of a Christian. It means that in our ministries, we've, we've got to embrace the crown of Christ as well as the cross of Christ. The seasons of victory, beauty, success, and glory, while also embracing the times of rejection, discomfort, pain, and loss. Because our ministry is cross-shaped. But the good news is, friends, our God is faithful. He will never leave nor forsake us. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And we are secure in his hands. For we who believe in the Lord Jesus will be saved and enjoy the rest of eternity in perfect peace, love, joy, and satisfaction in the presence of our God forever. Thus, Jesus is worth following now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.